Welcome back to Open Swim with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelshots, Eric Kogelshots, Brian Andrew Jasinski, and Alex Knight. Breaking news brands like to use celebrities to endorse their products. So while that's nothing new, obviously, what is a celebrity endorsement and what is the weight of a celebrity endorsement in 2019, specifically as it pertains to sporting? I don't know about you, but there are a lot of different ways that I've seen celebrities used. Eric, do you want to talk about how the FTC describes the use of endorsements? The FTC defines it into four categories, consumer, expert, organizations, and celebrities. And obviously that fourth category is the most popular, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Another area that they have focused on is the idea of influencers, and they've created a lot of different guidelines around this. We hear this phrase often combined with social, social influencers, and how you identify yourself when you're promoting a brand in social media. They have a different level of notoriety compared to the celebrity we see in TV and sports, in the movies, musicians, etc. Guidelines still need to be applied to these celebrities as well. Well, and obviously there are benefits on both sides of the house. So, you know, micro celebrities, if you will, or influencers in the social space sometimes are thought of as even more influential um, if their audiences are smaller and more niche. It just really depends on what you're trying to do, obviously. Well, there's so many different types of celebrity endorsements and formats. So one that we've seen in the last 10 years is the idea of the celebpreneur, Dr. Dre creating the beats. And then the idea of these super groups of celebpreneurs coming together, like Jay-Z did with all the other musicians in creating Tidal. That shows you how they're getting involved in a different way beyond just that category of being an ambassador or spokesperson. Yeah, I, you know, it really seems like these celebrities are seeing that there's power in ownership. And so rather than endorsing somebody else's products, some of these celebrities are deciding that there's a more effective way for them to actually own brands, which is nothing new. I mean, we saw this with a a variety of other brands, you know, through the ages. It seems like consumers, at least in the last decade, are more willing to, because of the lack of brand loyalty, which, you know, obviously that's a completely separate issue, but there are a lot of studies that suggest that the consumer is a lot more fluid in terms of their product loyalty and they're willing to take more risks, particularly the millennial consumer. So switching from your preferred Sony headphones, for example, to try out Dre Beats was not such a stretch for a number of consumers that were within the target audience for that product. So it seems like the market has shifted, and with that, those celebrity, what did you call them? Celebrepreneurs? Yeah, <laughs> that's a hard one. <laughs> it is. It seems like that group of people has really dialed in on a, on a recipe for success, and obviously we saw that with Dre Beats being um, so successful that they were acquired by Apple. So I think there's a lot to be learned there. But it doesn't mean that celebrity endorsements are going away in the traditional sense. This year's Super Bowl obviously showed us a host of do's and don'ts as far as, you know, as it always does, as far as celebrity endorsements are concerned. But bottom line, it did show us that brands and big brand advertising still sees a place for that type of endorsement. And for those celebrities that don't want to own the product or the service or the brand, obviously they can still do licensing. We all know George Foreman Grills. That's one probably one of the best examples of how licensing can work for a celebrity. Then you also have the idea of these mashups. So people know about U2 releasing their album on on Apple and Jay-Z releasing his album on Samsung Galaxies. That happened a few years ago. So that's just another approach that they can take. 
Additionally, what we've seen is the idea that these celebrities actually become a part of corporations and take on a role. Often this is a role that is... Yeah, exactly. So Alicia Keys took on the on the role of global creative director at BlackBerry, but that ended it was less than a year because she was caught using her iPhone when making an update on social media instead of a BlackBerry. So quickly they found a way to exit her out of the corporation. Another example though is Lady Gaga and she was pretty active in the relaunch of Polaroid when they brought back that camera. And her title over there was creative director, wasn't it? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so there is some responsibility associated with it, but there's obviously, as we saw in the Alicia Keys case, there's a lot of risk, right? And anytime you bring in a celebrity to endorse your product as a brand, obviously that's something you have to take into consideration and something that the lawyers are very good about writing into contracts as far as making the brands as minimally liable as possible should something happen. However, you know, even though there are legal ramifications, should somebody's actions reflect poorly on a brand, it's not always possible to get that social capital back. And so that's why these celebrity endorsements are something that brands need to really evaluate in a measured way to really assess, obviously, risk and reward. And I think more broadly, for the purposes of this conversation, we wanted to examine a a number of different facets that may influence brands' decision-making process. I think, too, when you bring in a celebrity as part of your company, you know, where they paint this picture, such as Alicia Keys or Lady Gaga, as almost if they have a desk in the corporate headquarters that I think even before any sort of advertising or messaging that those celebrities bring, they're taking a polarizing risk by bringing them on. There's plenty of people who are not a Gaga fan. So right away it's going to reflect negatively on their reaction to say Polaroid, or they may not be familiar with Alicia Keys. So therefore that investment that these companies are, are placing in these celebrities is really lost and or and or has this adverse you know effect on on the company and its product particularly for mass market brands like a polaroid you know obviously they saw that there was opportunity to segment but to your point you know that's a brand that historically has been for the masses so it's a very specific choice to make exactly with a very polarizing person another really good example of a mashup um, is puma with jay-z So Jay-Z has been brought on as a creative director, especially for their basketball line of shoes. And so Jay-Z brings along that, you know, he's obviously a celebrity. He's very well known, but he's also a business person. He's worth a ton of money. He knows what he's doing. He's well known with athletes and with people buying basketball shoes. And so he's been kind of tasked as that creative director almost to take some market share away from Adidas and from Nike in the basketball shoe space. And so I think alignments like that are super strategic and smart and totally make sense for what Puma is trying to do because they're seeing an opportunity. You can see in the last um, NBA draft, there were a few of the top picks that have signed already with Puma. And I have to assume that a large part of that is just having Jay-Z in the room with them because clearly Nike is the market leader in basketball shoes but they went with Puma, a totally different direction, a totally new way to kind of carve out their own path in the basketball space. So I think strategic partnerships and mashups like that are super valuable. I'm curious, you know, asking the group sitting here around the table, all being in the industry, do you find that frustrating? Because when you hear Jay-Z is the quote-unquote creative director, or when you see the Kardashians have released their new line of, you know, their fall collection, you know that they are not the ones 
creating, designing. So to hear that Jay-Z is being called the creative director is really almost preposterous to me because it's like you know that their their people are signing off on what he'll put his name on. It's not like he is doing research and pinning boards together and, and creating this next line of shoes. It really is name and and signing off on what perhaps he's representing. But I can guarantee you, you know, perhaps this is controversial to say, but I don't think he he has a literal part in the design process. And so to call him a creative director is pretty insane to me. It's a interesting thought because I remember when they made the announcement for Lady Gaga, I was actually upset by it. And the main mm-hmm. reason is because in the creative field, you have to work and earn your place. I think that's and that part of given. my reaction to that too. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like, you know, getting the honorary um, PhD for mm-hmm. the speaker who goes to graduation. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, I don't love that concept, but I do think there's some scenarios where these people do come in and they definitely put their fingerprints all over the brand. For me, I may have a slightly different perspective on it. Not that I like it, but I have a little bit of a different frame of reference having gone to film school. Because when you're in film school, you know, one of the things that they always tell you is that it's a point of respect to actually sit through the credits and see who actually worked on that Mm -hmm. piece of cinema and not just gloss over all the people that were doing the heavy lifting and only pay attention to the top line credits because most of the time what that is is exactly what we're talking about where people are lending their names as the executive producer but they're not actually doing the production work. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, my perspective on it is figureheads are nothing new. The term creative director is particularly offensive to a lot of people in our industry because that is a role where a lot of conceptual work happens, you know, with, with the person in that job. And so traditionally, you know, that's a role that, you know, has a lot of idea making and responsibility, responsibility mm. laid in, in it. And mm. it's not a figurehead role. And it, I think it does, you know, for a lot of us, it makes our hair stand on end because I think that we're sensitive to the fact that a lot of people work really hard to get to that place in their career. I understand that. I think a lot of it is just associating a, a, po- a popular name with a brand. Nike has LeBron, Nike has Kobe, Nike has Michael Jordan, obviously. Adidas has Kanye West, for example, just in basketball and and just fashion. Puma needs something in the basketball space to make them recognizable. Jay-Z has been involved in the NBA. He, He is, or at least was, a partial owner of the Brooklyn Nets. So he has a lot of influence in the space. I think it makes sense. And well, I don't question his involvement in the company. I question his title that they're giving mm. him. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think it's just the power of having Jay Z in the room. That's what yeah. it is. Well, and they're and yeah. no, it def- yeah. and it's a strategic move on their part. They're they are in, endowing him in a sense with a, a level of decision making, be it even be it just by appearance, so that you know, it, it it's it gives the illusion that he's much more involved than he may or may not be. And I think that's what's really upsetting. Obviously, Brian, I think it upsets you, and I think it upsets a lot of people in the industry when when they make it seem like he really is the one calling the shots. Exactly. And it is an illusion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it might not be. I mean, who knows? In Jay-Z's case, you know, he's been hands-on with brands in the past. It's possible that he wants to be hands-on with with Puma now. I think the the bigger question for me that, uh, that I'll be interested to track and investigate as time goes on is, does that bet pay off? I mean, to me, I think the bigger issue is Puma trying to get into the basketball space. And traditionally, they have not been a basketball shoe. You don't not they have not been a performance I, shoe for a right. very long time. And, you know, they've been largely known as a fashion brand for the better part of the last 30 years, if not more. 
And so I'll be interested to see if they can make that leap to athleticism and if that really is something that plays out in the mainstream, not just with the celebrities that endorse them, with the but with the people that actually use that product in the, in the public sphere. The other thing to consider there, and Brian, you brought this up just before we started recording, in the shoe category, what's kind of interesting is it seems like there are some shifts there. In the world of celebrity, and in particular athlete endorsements of products, there is this theory that the idea of big sponsorships of a single athlete are are quickly dwindling and going out of style and that they no longer hold the equity that they that they once did. According to a group retail analyst, Matt Powell, he said that, quote, the paid endorser model is simply broken. Consumers have begun to realize how phony these pay-to-wear deals are. Celebrities have no loyalty to brands or fans. They simply will endorse whatever they are paid to wear, unquote. And to the, to the level that athletes are literally admitting they're saying you know i don't necessarily was not necessarily uh loyal to this particular brand but they are the brand that gave me the biggest deal and therefore i will wear them on the court you know so there was not even a smoke and mirror they're they're admitting that recently um, a few years ago people were surprised when of all athletes roger federer who's you know you don't think of a tennis star as you know that that league of basketball players or football players. But he strangely signed a, a fairly large deal with Uniqlo, which was a 10-year endorsement deal, and it was worth $300 million. Wow. And people were... It's like an interesting pairing. It's an interesting he's pairing. He's so old, too. Did he just sign that? And that's funny that you say that. It's like Alex. 35 Be- or 36. Well, right? he's 37, and oh, they wow. that's part of the whole surprise that people had. So first of all, he had been negotiating for quite some time with Nike. And again, he said, quote, we tried to work it out. From my point of view, I thought I was being reasonable, but everyone sees it differently. And when you... What you see as your value may not be what they see. I'm happy to be proven right with this long-term deal with Uniqlo, unquote. Hmm. So that right there in his words, he's saying, Nike didn't see the value that I saw in myself, so therefore I'm going to move my loyalties to somebody who does. It's certainly a gamble because the idea is, first of all, tennis, is, as I said, is not in the same, no pun intended, arena as basketball or, or football or even baseball players. But also, is he a big enough name? Is he a LeBron James or one of the Williams sisters or a Tom Brady? And also his longevity. As you said, he's 37. And his fan base tends to be a much older demographic, and it's a much narrower demographic. So he doesn't really have that universal appeal. And so to be promoting Uniqlo is kind of a strange pairing. I'm wondering if that's also indicative of where Uniqlo is going as a brand, however. I feel like their consumer is much younger right now. And maybe what they're trying to do is become more of a sort of mainstream, all-ages brand, circa gap in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Like maybe it's, they're trying to, to be more mass, which is not a play that I see working out for a lot of brands, right. frankly. You mm-hmm. know, they, we keep reading studies about how these middle-tier brands are slowly diminishing, where we're seeing the targets of the world succeed and we're seeing the luxury brands of the world succeed, but everyone in the middle is, is sort of scrapping to just continue to exist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I, I think that positioning is going to be something that, you know, they've taken a big bet on over at Uniqlo um, with this endorsement, and we'll have to see, you know, where things play out. You hit the nail on the head because they did say that his audience that he speaks to is more the wealthy boomer. Um, and what, who he should be speaking to is the millennial. So it could be a reverse 
reaction in a sense that will the millennials pay more attention to him because he is now with a brand that they're more familiar with. So it's almost a reverse endorsement in a Mm -hmm. way. Like they're loyal to this brand. They're bringing in this figure who may be a quote unquote stranger to them, but they want to then explore where he comes from as opposed to the typical LeBron James. You know who he is. Therefore, you know, so you're automatically connecting to that brand. So it almost takes a little bit more investigation and a, a little bit more of a courtship in a sense that the millennials may need to have with this endorsement. So I think be, it's it asking is, a lot of their audience to it be is, fair. Yeah. To, to be, to need to, like I just said, do some research. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you're not interested in the celebrity right now, but let me tell you, you should be interested in them. And like, we're going to, you know, unfold the campaign in such a way that it's going to get you interested. Like right. that's a lot. I'm not sure where they see the strategy leading to, but that's why it'll be interesting to watch. You're bringing the audience to the table. It's not necessarily that, um, the audience is embracing that brand. So that's part of it too. Is it, is this endorser representative of the brand? Do they embody the, the ethos, the Is character? he aspirational enough? Exactly. What will also be interesting is, yes, maybe he will be able to attract these, you know, quote unquote wealthy boomers. But I think that, you know, for the millennials, I think a large number of those millennials might not be familiar with him, if at all, very familiar with him. And I don't even know. Is he still playing tennis? <laughs> Does he still play? I believe he does, yes. Okay, all right. So he's still current in the sport and it just shows you that, you know, clearly I am not his I am not his target fan base. Right, but what's in, there was a large upset. He, you know, this past fall he lost, you know. So the, again, and that's fresh coming off of this deal. So it's kind of an ironic moment, if you will. But I think it, it all comes back to, um, as I said, what, what this author of uh, Matt Powell was saying, and as we began to say, it's the idea of this single athlete sponsorship. That model is going away, and it's not so much any as you know we just were saying. It's not about that obvious connection with this Roger Federer issue. It's about that discovery, um, and it's also about the idea that it's not necessarily that this athlete is wearing this particular shoe or endorsing this particular soda. It's much more evocative. Whereas before it was about selling the product, now it's actually a little bit more about making a statement and and setting the tone for the brand. Most notably, this past fall, everybody was talking about the Nike spot that featured Colin Kaepernick at the end. It was this build, and then at the end, that resolution of seeing Colin Kaepernick, that was a spot where he is not selling anything. He is not endorsing anything. It was more about his presence in the commercial. They were making a statement. They were taking a stand dare I even say taking a side and to be using such a polarizing figure again as we said earlier a gamble but it had people talking and you had the extreme reactions of support and then you had the extreme reactions of people burning or cutting the Nike logo off of their clothing and posting it on social media to show their outrage that they would associate with with that polarizing figure. There's a couple interesting things to talk about when you talk about the Kaepernick inclusion in the campaign. So the first is, you know, no matter how you feel about the spot or the campaign, Nike actually saw an uptick in business. So they actually had a five-point stock increase in the fall. And from a business case perspective, when you look at ROI, this was a successful move for Nike. Six billion dollars, right? Yeah. So that was six billion dollars in incremental income for Nike. That's huge. As far as how this will play out for them in the long run with consumers, who knows? But in the short term, it was something that did yield them results. And so I think the learning to take away from this is more than anything, 
Nike placed a big bet on what their audience wanted from the brand at that specific moment. And that bet paid off. And I think the learning for brands is what you might do might not resonate with people overall, but it might be the thing that your audience needs. And that's the most important thing to consider when pulling in a celebrity endorsement. And I think as we talk about some examples, even from the recent Super Bowl spots, that's why some of these these endorsements or inclusions make sense. And that's why some other, you know, decisions might be a little less sound. I, I think when you try and play to the masses with a celebrity endorsement, sometimes that's where you fail because you don't get specific about what your audience is expecting to hear from your brand at that moment. Absolutely. And in addition, it, it speaks to the idea that what consumers want are their these products or these companies that they follow or that they patronize are wanting them to take a stand on social issues that are, and I, I think that's reflective of what's happening in society. More than ever than in recent history, it's out in the fore- forefront. It's on the playground. It's no longer companies dodging, trying to be vanilla in a sense to appease everybody. Uh, that example of Nike is they took a stand, they took a side, and it paid off. So I, I do think that speaks to consumers liking the fact that these these brands are 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 speaking much like many people are. I wonder if it's also a reflection of the fact that we're living in a very transparent digital age where, you know, even if you don't take a side with your celebrity endorsement, what you do on social, what you do in terms of your manufacturing, what you do in terms of your treatment ethically or otherwise of your employees, sustainability issues. These things in the era of digital blockchain, some type of tracking of the way that you do business, these things are going to be unearthed. So whether you make a conscious decision to bring in a celebrity or some kind of endorser um, that's front and forward or just in the way you conduct your business, your consumers are going to find out. And a lot of consumers are making it very clear that they want to vote with their dollars And so I think we'll see more of that, whether it's a uh, an entertainment driven decision or just um, sort of a logistics one. And I do hope that it doesn't become a trend for trend's sake. You know, like we're going to plug the social issue into this ad, which you do already see. Oh, absolutely. Years ago, it was we used to call it greenwashing, you Mm -hmm. know, right with like all these companies that wanted to be seen as sustainable. And sometimes it was truly a design decision and not necessarily something they were doing as part of their operations. Exactly. But it goes back to brand alignment. I mean, Nike's tagline is just do it. It doesn't say do it with caution. You know, it's Mm -hmm. go for it. They went for it. And they did. If people say your dreams are crazy, if they laugh at what you think you can do, good. Because calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. Don't try to be the fastest in your school. Be the fastest ever. Don't believe you have to be like anybody to be somebody. Don't become the best basketball player on the planet. Be bigger than basketball. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. If you have only one hand, don't just watch football, play. And if you're a girl from Compton, become the greatest athlete ever. Yeah, that's more like it. So don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. So in the instance that using a celebrity endorsement does make sense, what are some of the benefits that you could get out of this endorsement? So for example, I think one of the obvious benefits is that these celebrities have a network and they have notoriety. So the awareness and reach that you get from using a celebrity 
um, that built-in audience is something that you know extends your ability as a brand to you know touch a wider array of people. Alex, what's one of the other reasons why it could be beneficial to your brand? So another reason is that by using influencer marketing or, or endorsements, a brand can gain trust with its audience. So I think a lot of people on social media, when people are scrolling through their social media feeds, people are getting good at realizing what's an ad and what's not, when what's an endorsement and what's not. And I think people don't necessarily trust um, or take too seriously a branded um, advertisement or endorsement, but if they see a celebrity or an influencer that they can relate to or that they just in general in general like, they might be more willing to watch that advertisement or look at it or read the caption and engage with it. So it just comes back to that endorser can build trust between its brand and its audience. I think that feeds into the idea of persuading the audience and creating and giving that sense of confidence that the consumer has when they make that decision to buy that product and in in turn you know in a sense they're doing their own endorsement of the product so when they see somebody who where it doesn't feel like an obtuse connection like a lot of times you do see that in in placements such as the Super Bowl when you know everybody's screaming like why in the world are they in this commercial Um, I know as a team we watched the, the commercials together and there were so many instances where it made no sense and you leave your yourself wondering why, why did they do that? Is it just for the, the purpose of that person being in there? So I think when you see somebody who is a natural fit, that natural confidence in their endorsement, it doesn't feel forced. It feels authentic and that they're, what, what they're communicating to you through their endorsement is, is something you can believe in and therefore make that decision to per- make that purchase. So another benefit of athletes as endorsers is the idea that your brand will have greater recognition. That is, if the endorser aligns with the character and personality of the brand. The other idea is that you will have greater brand recall because they will associate the brand with that endorser. And then also retention. Based on what we all just said about the benefits of influencer marketing and and using endorsements, I want to ask a question to the group and to the audience listening at home. Are you more willing when you go to the grocery store now to buy Planters Peanuts because Charlie Sheen was in their Super Bowl ad? And I think the answer is no, because the attributes of the endorser do not align with the brand. You could say that, yes, Charlie Sheen is nuts, but (laughs) that does not mean that the product has the quality because he lacks that as a brand. There's not an accurate reflection of the brands with the endorser. Now, on the other hand, I will say that the Dr. Ruth spot with the planter's peanut for Valentine's Day definitely was a great alignment. I thought that they really went for it. I love your nuts. Everybody loves your nuts. Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Westheimer, and I am a love and relationship expert. Here is my very dear friend, Mr. Peanut. You're gonna need a bigger boat. 
Buy Bigger Boat goes out to Big League Chew, who for the first time in their 40-year history will be featuring a female athlete on their packaging to promote their product. Elena Berry, who's a sophomore softball player, is going to be that athlete. And I say congratulations to both Ms. Berry as well as Big League Chew. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes to LeBron James. I think LeBron was the first athlete to use a product that made me want to buy it. The funny thing is that it wasn't even an ad. I remember as a kid seeing a story about him on TV and he was holding a Robex smoothie and I'd never heard of Robex before. And I don't think he's ever been endorsed by Robex or ever sponsored their smoothies. But I remember seeing that and because LeBron was drinking it, I wanted it. And I've been hooked ever since. Shout out to the Mahalo Mango Smoothie from Robex. This episode, my bigger boat goes out to professional skateboarder, Nigel Houston. Nigel started skateboarding when he was only two years old. And today at the age of 24, He's one of the most well-known and highest-paid skaters in the world. In addition to being sponsored by Element, Monster Energy, CCS, Cracker Barrel, Doritos, and Mountain Dew, Nija is also sponsored by Nike Skateboarding. Last year, he released an 11-minute commercial or skate video called Till Death. Today, it has almost 5 million views. If you're interested in the future of skateboarding, check out his Instagram account, at Nija. This episode, My Bigger Boat goes out to the Bowling Green State University rugby team, who traveled to North Carolina early this past January to claim victory, sealing the coveted title of not state champions, but national champions of the USA Rugby Division 1AA. As with any team, it's an outcome of hours of work, focus, and teamwork, but the true reason for their bigger boat is rooted in the passion for the sport of rugby this team exhibits, and the fact is they truly play out of pure dedication. Though the BGSU rugby team celebrated its 50th anniversary with the university last year in 2018. The remarkable part of this victory is the fact that rugby isn't an official varsity sport at Bowling Green, but it's considered a club sport. Since it's considered a club sport, this means financial support from the university is minimal. Despite the fact that year after year, Bowling Green rugby is among the nation's best, competing against and beating teams from schools where rugby is an endowed varsity sport. This means every player on the team pays his own way to play and compete. No scholarships, no official recognition by the National College Athletic Association. Each player contributing roughly $1,500 a year to play, in addition to their own university tuition and living expenses. The coaches share in this dedication, and despite intensive hours and travel with the team, they do not collect a dime. I should mention I have a personal bias, as my nephew Mason is part of this championship team, not to mention the president of his chapter, which makes me even prouder of the team. Mason's team is truly a testament to playing for the love of the game. No end game of money or perks, as we've all discussed on today's episode, but for the camaraderie of competing and, of course, the thrill of victory. This episode of Open Swim is in support of Nubability, a nonprofit whose mission is to encourage, inspire, and instruct limb different youth in mainstream sports. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Chaconing. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.